his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Rod Rodriguez, and this is The Back Brief. This is the year that just feels like it's never going to end. We had uh, a possible war with Iran early in the year. We have had COVID-19. We've had murder hornets. We have had protests. We've had riots. And now we are faced with the possibility that active duty troops could be used right here on American soil. It's not something that hasn't been done before, but it is definitely something we need to be talking about. This is, a, this is a conversation that that America has to have. In addition to a lot of other conversations America has to have, we have to have some race conversations. We have to have some justice conversations. But on this episode of The Back Brief, we're going to be talking primarily about active duty troops. We're going to be talking about what does that mean? What is uh, the Insurrection Act? How does any of that work? Uh, we got Jack Murphy, who's going to take us through his experience and what he knows about what these soldiers are doing out here that are positioned outside of D.C. or inside of D.C., I should say. And Abby Bennett's going to talk to us a little bit about what's happening in the world of the Secretary of Defense, uh, General Mattis's uh, comments that he made, and as well as some news that you don't want to have fall to the wayside. Look, it's really easy to look at everything and say, hey, this is what we need to be focusing on, and we should be focusing on that stuff, too. But there's a lot of veteran stories, a lot of veteran issues that we do not want to fall to that wayside. We don't want that to get lost in the sauce as it will. So we're going to be talking about some of the veteran stories you need to be thinking about. But to kick this episode off, we're going to talk with journalist, author, veteran, Jack Murphy. My name is Jack Murphy. I have worked as a journalist covering military affairs for about eight years now. Uh, I served in the military myself for eight years uh, prior to getting out, going to college, and starting this new career. And I'm currently a reporter for ConnectingVets.com. Awesome. Jack, what is going on right now? Uh, We have troops that have been apparently moved from Fort Bragg to D.C. We don't know where they're at, what they're doing. We've also heard about Pase, Comitatus, all sorts of stuff. What do we need to know? Well, there are a number of things different uh, happening right now. We're in a, a very interesting time as, you know, a num- numerous different issues are swirling together. It's not any one thing. We're looking at, uh, at uh, civil rights protests combined with rioting and looting uh, in response to an uh, uh, unarmed black man who was killed by police officers in Minneapolis uh, combined with COVID-19. Um, you know, the, the virus continues to be an issue and the, the various states of lockdown continue to exist. And then when you have people responding to longstanding social issues mm-hmm. and 
one could argue, um, people who have felt marginalized or antagonized by President Trump. So all of these things are combining into one historical moment that we're seeing unfold right now this week. Um, as far as what I cover, uh, the military, what happened back on Saturday was that the 82nd Airborne Division received an alert for the first time. Uh, they, they were alerted, and then they, the Pentagon initially denied that it was happening. And then once they were actually deployed back on the early morning hours of June 2nd, uh, they changed to no comment and would not comment on the size, strength, and disposition of uh, said active duty forces on the outskirts of Washington, D.C. Technically, they are in the national capital region. Uh, they were flown on C-17 aircraft. It was the, so the 82nd Airborne, you have to understand, has the IRF, the Immediate Response Force, which is like America's 911 call that the president can hit when you need to rapidly deploy soldiers to crises anywhere around the world. Uh, the IRF was last deployed on New Year's Eve. They deployed in response to mounting tensions between the United States and Iraq, or I'm sorry, the United States and Iran, Iran. Um, specifically, uh, you know, in our embassy nearly getting overran over there at the time. So the IRF was deployed to Iraq uh, to bolster our efforts there. And now this happened uh, in response to everything going on in America, the IRF specifically, there is the IRB. So there in the, in the immediate response force, there are three IRBs, IRB one, two, and three. It's the immediate response battalion. So IRB one was the element that got deployed from Fort Bragg, North Carolina to Joint Base Andrews, Maryland, right on the outskirts of Washington, D.C., they took C-17 aircraft, flew there. Uh, by some reports, the 82nd Airborne soldiers were actually staying in the Air Force One hangar for a while. Meanwhile, helicopters, UH-60 Blackhawks and CH-47 Chinooks were flown in uh, to be their air package. And this would have the 82nd Airborne active duty paratroopers poised to respond to emergencies and, uh, or any other sort of deployment inside Washington, D.C. within minutes. They could, I mean, we're talking about they would buy a helicopter. They would be just minutes away from central Washington, D.C. So, Jack, what I understand is all of these troops were moved into the D.C. metropolitan area specifically to, to potentially uh, stop or disperse a civil disturbance that would be the riots in and around uh, the White House. Now, what about the rest of the country? What about Minneapolis? What about Houston? What about Dallas? What about all these other cities that are burning right now? What, was there any talk or plans to, just, to deploy troops to those places? Yes, there have been. And this would require, so Washington, D.C. and federal land in Washington, D.C. falls under somewhat different auspices, and there's some more leeway there um, as far as what the United States government can do. But to deploy, say we were to, de to deploy active duty soldiers to Minneapolis or New York City or a place like that, it would likely involve the White House invoking the 1807 Insurrection Act, which is sort of the loophole to posse comitatus, which for the most part precludes the use of active duty soldiers uh, in law enforcement roles domestically in the United States. So the Insurrection Act can be invoked uh, in times of rebellion or insurrection or times where uh, violent acts are depriving Americans of their constitutional rights and state governments cannot or will not intercede in those incidents. So 
the White House would probably have to rely on the 1807 Insurrection Act to deploy soldiers to cities around the United States if they were to go that route. So when we're talking about, you know, the D.C. area, what is it about the D.C. area that makes it okay to to put these troops in? Because some of the some of the thoughts I had was, well, okay, we have troops protecting the White House, which is important, but the White House also has Secret Service. The White House has the D.C. police. We have the Alexandria. We have all these surrounding police departments. It doesn't seem like the White House should be in a position that they need to call in active duty troops. They have the National Guard. Why would the White House require the IRF, or now I I believe they're called Task Force 504, why would they require task force, an entire task force, to reinforce the D.C. National Guard to reinforce the police that are being reinforced by local uh, police departments? Well, there are a number of things, both real and perceived, if we're to talk, uh, you know, if I'm to speak uh, as far as my opinion on the subject. Um, I, I think you have to look at, you know, the first night of the rioting, really. The main gate at the White House was breached. You had a guard tower over or a guard shack, you know, overrun, set on fire. Um, a lot of, they're not Secret Service agents, they're actually part of the security detail but at the White House, but they belong to the Secret Service, and dozens of them were injured um, during that fighting. Uh, because of all of that going on, the Secret Service brought President Trump down to a bunker um, to make sure that he was safe and secure during that incident, just in case protesters or rioters did totally breach the White House defenses and actually breach and, and get into the White House. So I think you have to understand that, you know, we regard our government as this monolithic institution that's just there and it's been there forever, that actually the artifice of the state is much more fragile than perhaps we think it is, and that the people who occupy these institutions um, are sometimes a bit more shaky and a bit more fearful than maybe they would like to project outwardly. So it's not necessarily a surprise that, you know, the government relies on uh, the United States military to do the heavy lifting uh, when things aren't looking so good for them. You know, I think there's a great George Carlin quote where he says, power is going to do what power wants to do. We saw some uh, video of some guys out there, some troops, they look like troops, uh, but they were equipped very differently from riot shields. These guys were tacked out. They got the, you know, the, the, fancy, uh, the fancy kit going on. They've got some very interesting looking guns. They've got silencers on the end. These guys looked like they came straight out of modern warfare. Uh, and there's video and pictures of these folks. Are, are, are those guys Secret Service? Are those guys military? And if they're military, do, does are, are special operations precluded from the uh, PSA? Are they are they in a different universe when it comes to the laws that govern federal and active duty soldiers? So you're seeing a number of different things. Uh, I think one important thing to point out is that since 9/11, uh, you know, police forces, law enforcement forces around the country have all received the type of equipment you're describing or I shouldn't say all, not necessarily your local police uh, officer in a small town, but state uh, and federal and even local um, police SWAT teams and things like this have received military-looking equipment, military-esque equipment similar to what you know I, I would have used when I was deployed overseas. So to see them with that is not necessarily surprising or even indicative of anything uh, necessarily. 
Uh, some of the guys you're seeing uh, in these pictures around Washington, D.C., some of them are FBI SWAT, FBI hostage rescue team guys. Uh, some of them are Bureau of Prisons uh, guys who have been deployed for infrastructure security. Um, so you're seeing all sorts of different um, institutions, all sorts of different agencies coming out, and they all look very similar. They've all received very similar equipment. As a member of the press, are you at all concerned about the level of violence that we've seen uh, exerted by whoever is out there carrying a riot shield or whatever agency they might be? Uh, there has been an unprecedented amount of violence towards you know, the press, folks with cameras, folks with microphones trying to cover the story. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think there's definitely an issue there. I'm not sure if the police are, are, or the riot control police are necessarily targeting the press specifically, but rather that the press goes to do their job so they're right in the midst of it and they get caught up in it. I, I'm not there, so I can't really say. Um, but I think there are definitely concerns, and I, I would just say that the deployment of active duty paratroopers uh, for riot control is not the right solution here. Uh, and I say this, I was a former paratrooper myself in Ranger Battalion. Um, those guys are not trained for that type of operation. Um, and their mentality is for war. That you have these guys who are wound up, they're ready to fight, and they're really good at what they do. I mean, the 82nd Airborne are the guys who got surrounded in Bastogne during the Battle of the Bulge and just refused to surrender <laughs> back during World War II. Right. I mean, these are, these are hardcore dudes, and they like to fight. And uh, our country is lucky to have soldiers like this, but they are the wrong type of soldier to deploy for this type of incident. Um, you know, you send them in there to do this job and for them, you know, it's going to get out of hand really quickly. And I don't necessarily even blame them for that. It's just you do not deploy paratroopers and special forces soldiers for domestic riot control or domestic law enforcement. It's just a recipe for disaster. As a, again, as a journalist, are you at all concerned about the level of spin that we're seeing right now? I, I can tell you, I cannot go on Twitter or Facebook without seeing literally the same article and it's just being spun in, in very many different ways. It's very hard to sort through what is yeah. propaganda and what is actual information. Uh, what's your advice to the consumer, the people that are listening and reading, uh, folks that are going to Connecting Vets trying to find facts? How, how do we do that? Well, I think you have to be very deliberate uh, and, and seek out um, places where they rely more on fact-based reporting. Um, you know, there are, you know, Connecting Vets is a great source of information. You know, we're biased, of course, we work there. Uh, Associated Press, Reuters, those are also agencies that tend to be very fact-based in their reporting without a lot of uh, hyperbole. Um, I, I'd say just be very careful about, uh, you know, emotional engagement or, or, or confirmation bias. I mean, I think what I'm noticing with the protests and also with the riots is that everyone is projecting what they want to see in them. So some people are seeing Antifa, some people are seeing white supremacy, some people are seeing peaceful uh, civil rights protests. It's like, depending on who you are, you project into it what you want to see. Um, and the truth is perhaps that there's a little bit of all of these things mixed in there, unfortunately. You know, um, there are some bad actors in there. But We've talked, you, you brought up Antifa and you brought up some of these organizations. Antifa, I believe, is now, rec are, are they recognized as a terrorist organization or are they going to be or is there talk? Uh, there's been talk. There's been nothing formally done. I, I don't 
Now, I, I know, you know, they can designate foreign organizations as terrorist organizations. Domestically, I'm not sure what you, what you can do there um, as far as a terror. Do we have any domestically designated terrorist organizations? I mean, we have ones that are designated hate groups, right? Well, I, I think they were, I, I think there are a couple, like the, uh, the Weather Underground. Uh, I think that they were, I think they were labeled a domestic terrorist organization See, when, back in the 70s. When we, when we talk about uh, designating terrorist organizations, uh, like there's Trump about, uh, or I'm sorry, there's talk about designating Mexican drug cartels as terrorist organizations. Right. That, that's for the uh, State Department. They have a, a list of foreign terrorist organizations, the FTO. Uh, so that's typically what we're talking about when we say designation. Uh, I'm not sure domestically what would be done there, actually. Awesome. Is there anything else you want to add? You want anything, is there anything else you want to talk about? No, I mean, it's a huge issue. And I mean, there's a lot of uh, melodrama that's been going on over the last couple of days. It's still making my head spin. But I mean, I think that's the bulk of it. Awesome. Jack, thanks so much for taking time out of your, your day. I know you're super busy right now trying to track everything, all the leads for the story. Um, yeah, man. Thanks, brother. Appreciate you. Yeah, and, thank you. All right. Next up. From Capitol Hill, Abby Bennett. I am Abby Bennett. I am the Capitol Hill and Veterans Affairs reporter for Connecting Vets. Um, I cover veterans issues on Capitol Hill. I also cover the Department of Veterans Affairs, which is the largest healthcare system in the entire country um, and includes national cemeteries and benefits and things like that. So we heard, we, we, we know that the country is something on I don't think that's a that's too much of an inaccurate statement. But tell us a little bit about what's going on. I know that uh, General Mattis just came out uh, talking for the first time uh, about some of the president's decisions. We've got our uh, Secretary of Defense talking about some of the president's decisions. So what's happened in the last 24 hours that we need to know about? Yeah, so in the last few days, we've seen a lot of military leaders come forward and share their feelings or statements about the current situation in the country and about the death of George Floyd and about race relations in America. Um, a lot of people had been anxiously awaiting some of those statements um, to hear from the leaders of our armed forces about how they're feeling. Um, and there was some criticism that it took so long, maybe some gauging of how the wind would blow before they decided to say something. Um, but two of the most you know, I think newsworthy ones and two of the ones that made the biggest impressions were the current Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, uh, yesterday said that he did not necessarily support the use of the Insurrection Act for current uh, situations in the United States to deploy active duty military troops to deal with protesters in states across the country. That is something that seemed like it was on the table when the president spoke with governors and when he spoke from the Rose Garden this past week um, about, you know, if governors were not able to quell the violence in their states, he would deploy the US active duty military to handle that for them. And so for the Secretary of Defense, who is a cabinet appointee by the president to sort of maybe disagree or depart from the president's uh, intentions was a big deal. Um, it led a lot of people to question 
whether or not the president would still have faith that he could do his duties as the Secretary of Defense and whether or not he may be long in that job. Um, today, the White House press secretary told reporters that Secretary Esper is still Secretary Esper for now um, and that we would know if that changes. Um, so that's caused a lot of consternation and a lot of questioning, obviously. Uh, Secretary Esper is not uh, required for the president to invoke the Insurrection Act. Uh, the president can do that and as Commander-in-Chief can order those troop deployments without Secretary Esper. Um, but certainly I, I think any president would prefer that his Secretary of Defense be on the same page and that they work together. Um, so that's definitely caused some questioning and some issues. Also, yesterday evening, we had uh, maybe an even more dramatic announcement somehow from former Secretary of Defense General Mattis, who is uh, much beloved and much maligned in the military community. Um, he, uh, he decided that after a very, very long time of maintaining that he would never criticize a sitting president, uh, that now was the time for him to speak up. Uh, and to disagree very strongly with the president about the idea of deploying active duty troops against protesters, against American citizens in this climate. Uh, you know, General Mattis did oversee the deployment of military troops to the border uh, previously. Um, and there are a lot of issues that people take with General Mattis's time as Secretary of Defense, but he certainly is a leader that many people admire, that many people respect. Um, and his silence so far uh, has made a lot of people critical of him, that he hasn't spoken up about the president's actions before now and before this civil unrest in the country. But now certainly I think a lot of people were wondering what the general had to say about the current situation, obviously, uh, the military has not been in quite this kind of spotlight in a, a while, I think I would say. Um, and so for the general to come out uh, with such a strongly worded criticism of the president really uh, caught everybody's attention, I think even more than the current Secretary of Defense. And this comes on the heels of a couple of other military leaders coming forward and expressing not necessarily um, a statement against the president, but certainly they're expressing a lot more tolerance. They're ex expressing restraint. They're talking about subjects. So, for example, the Sergeant Major of the Army, Grinston, uh, was putting out a couple of things on social media talking about, hey, you know, we're, if, when you're looking across the line, you have to understand that that's another American citizen. We're all in this together. A lot of uh, this idea of, of, of unity coming from the Air Force, I believe the Air Force, General Air Force, uh, Sergeant Major uh, of the Army, all these military leaders coming forth. Now we have General Mattis and our own acting uh, Secretary of Defense. Um, what is the general air on Capitol Hill right now? Is the president's back up against the wall or is he just as you know, free to do what he was gonna do before with, with his own expressed uh, intentions? I think that, you know, Things are, things are pretty split. We've seen um, McConnell, for example, throw his support be behind Secretary Esper uh, since it looked like the secretary was on a little bit of shaky ground. That has happened just recently. 
Um, and to have that kind of support on Capitol Hill is a big, a big deal. Um, but I think, you know, anytime anything, especially with this president, but with previous presidents as well, you're, you're going to have a split um, on Capitol Hill. We've seen several lawmakers come out uh, and encourage the president to invoke the Insurrection Act, most famously uh, Tom Cotton, whose uh, op-ed ran in the New York Times and created quite a firestorm uh, from uh, Mr. Cotton's perspective. He believes that not only should the troops be deployed under the Insurrection Act, but he has also mentioned the phrase no quarter, um, which no quarter orders, as you know, are a war crime and have been since President Lincoln established that they are an international war crime. And for those who don't know, no, no quarter means uh, to take no prisoners. Um, and to invoke that kind of language, even if maybe that's not literally what he meant, is still, I think, very disturbing to lots of folks. And, and so uh, that created a lot of concern. But you also have leaders on Capitol Hill who really, I think, are looking for answers from our military leaders who, um, you know, we have Chairman Smith in the House Armed Services Committee who has called for a hearing as soon as possible with General Milley and Secretary Esper to explain what has happened with American troops, guard, active, whatever, um, when it comes to this situation, when it comes to these protests and the security measures that have been taken. I think Capitol Hill lawmakers, I mean, Chairman Smith just um, day before yesterday actually said uh, to reporters, I know as much as you do. Um, and I think that was a big frustration for him and for a lot of lawmakers who are not involved in those conversations always between the executive branch and the Department of Defense, for example. Um, many decisions can be made uh, by the president and by the secretary without any kind of input from Congress. And sometimes that is the way that it needs to happen, um, but certainly lawmakers want to know, um, you know, it's Congress's job to provide oversight of the executive branch and of the Defense Department. And so they want to know what's going on. They want to uh, be informed of those decisions so that they can weigh in on them, so that if any laws need to be passed or any action needs to be taken, they can do that. Um, and, you know, these this situation has very long-reaching consequences. You know, we're talking about deploying, you know, at minimum the Guard for however long under whatever circumstances. And, you know, we've, with the coronavirus, we've dealt with a lot of complications with the Guard being deployed for different lengths of time. Um, that comes with benefits issues and making sure that they're getting what they need and that they're fully supported. So it is definitely a political issue. Um, it's a political issue that obviously causes a lot of di division. That's not surprising to anyone. Um, but I think that you're, you're going to see people come down on different sides of the issue that maybe you wouldn't necessarily expect, you know, for Senator McConnell to come out and say that he supports Secretary Esper when Secretary Esper's position may be in question um, is pretty interesting. Um, but as far as where the president is at right now, I think that that's hard to tell. You know, there are different stories coming out from sources close to the president saying 
very, very different things about how he's handling and reacting to the situation. But I think at the end of the day, um, what will matter are his actions and his words publicly, either through his Twitter account or from the White House um, or wherever he's speaking and the specific actions he and the Department of Defense decide to take. So for veterans everywhere, what does this mean to them? What are there other, and also are there other stories that have, that might've been kind of overshadowed by these giant events? I, you know, uh, we're still in the middle of the coronavirus. Uh, that is still a very real thing out there, despite uh, <laughs> contradictory reporting by some non-journalistic folks. Uh, we are still in the middle of, of COVID. Uh, there is still isolation, there is still, uh, businesses are not back up to normal. Uh, certain VA hospitals are not accepting in-person patients. Still a lot of telehealth. What's been going on in that world? Or when will, is there any foreseeable end to this for veterans to be able to go see VA hospitals? So that's a great question. I actually spoke with uh, VA Secretary Wilkie yesterday, um, as well as Veterans Health Administration Director or Executive Dr. Richard Stone. Um, so he's in charge of the healthcare aspect of VA. Um, and really, you know, nobody knows because it's, it's so hard to tell how this is going to go. Um, but I can say that as we move through summer, VA is preparing for a resurgence of the virus in the fall and the winter. Um, you know, Dr. Stone points to previous pandemics that the United States has experienced, um, including the Spanish influenza, where the second resurgence in the fall and winter time was much more deadly um, and was much more costly to the country. Um, and what is a complicating factor and something that I am actually working on a story for, uh, for Connecting Vets right now, after talking with Dr. Stone, is that COVID patients some of them who were very sick will require a lot of recovery care. Some of them who were hospitalized may need up to four weeks of recovery care. And in some cases, they may still need ventilators while recovering. So Knowing that, knowing that VA may have a portion of their patients who need extensive recovery time, that's beds that are taken up that were not taken up when the pandemic began. And so Dr. Stone told me that they are taking that into account as they consider expanding and making sure that they have enough room and enough beds and enough supplies, and ventilators and things like that come fall and winter. But that is a concern. Um, you know, the extent to which this virus may uh, cause additional spikes, because I don't want to, return is not quite the right word, because it's not gone. It didn't go anywhere. Um, in fact, VA has had, I think, an 8% increase in deaths over the past uh, six days, I believe, um, and an increase in cases, uh, including active cases recently. And also, obviously, with mass gatherings like protests, we have a much higher uh, chance of infection. Uh, so with testing still not where it needs to be, it's very, very, very difficult. I would say impossible to tell how things are going to be, you know, even a month from now. 
So it's really difficult, but VA leaders, Secretary Wilkie and Dr. Stone told the Senate yesterday um, that they are working to prepare. Congress gave VA almost $20 billion in emergency virus response money. VA so far has only allocated $2 billion of that, so a tenth of that money. And so Congress wanted to know why. And Secretary Wilkie said, well, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was expecting hundreds of thousands of infections. I've only had, you know, less than 15,000. And that includes staff. Knowing that, we haven't needed as much money as we thought we would, but also we're preparing for a possible second spike of the virus. So they're holding on to money. They're getting more supplies. Secretary Wilkie said that they're setting up depots of supplies all across the country so that hopefully VA's supply chain will not be interrupted like it was before. That was something that we covered extensively was that VA staff were telling me, were telling other journalists that they were without masks, that they were given one disposable mask and told to wash it until it fell apart, um, that they were given expired supplies. Um, and I, I mean, I saw the emails that they were sent by VA leadership. Um, I, I can verify that that is the case. And, and all along, VA was saying that they had no shortage of supplies. In fact, Secretary Wilkie said yesterday that VA never ran out of supplies, which is not what VA staff has told me, um, but it is what he told Congress. So what he said was that they are setting up supplies strategically to hopefully prevent any kind of shortage from happening in the future. Um, so that, that is how VA is preparing for the virus right now. Um, in Congress, they just introduced a bill today, actually, that would allow VA some more flexibility on how it spends its money for homeless veterans. A lot of people don't know that VA depends on outside organizations an enormous amount to provide care for homeless vets. Uh, things like food and shelter and hygiene items, which are so much more important now during the pandemic because lots of homeless shelters have shut down. Um, and homeless veterans don't have access to running water or soap. They don't have a way to isolate themselves. And so Congress is trying to go in and change things around and provide VA the permissions, um, the authority, and the funding to make sure that they can take care of homeless veterans because as we know, with a huge economic downturn, it makes people far more likely to become homeless, especially veterans. And on any given night in the United States, tens of thousands of veterans are homeless. Um, and those are just the ones we can count. There are many, many, many veterans who do things like couch surf, you know, stay on a friend's couch, um, who are technically homeless, um, but are not counted in those numbers. So lots and lots of people who are housing insecure or, um, or you know, having other difficulties that lawmakers are trying to step in and give VA the permission it needs to do what it can to help. Where can we learn more about you and Connecting Vets? Connectingvets.com and I am always on Twitter 24 hours a day at this point um, at Abby, A-B-B-I-E, the letter R is in red, 
Bennett, B-E-N-N-E-T-T. All right. Thank you so much. No problem. Folks, that does it for this episode of The Back Brief. I'm Rod Rodriguez. Be sure to subscribe to The Back Brief Vet Story. Check out our other news articles. Uh, You just go to ConnectingVets.com. All of our podcasts are available on the Radio.com app, as well as Apple, Stitcher, Play Store, wherever you find your favorite podcast, you're going to find The Back Brief Vet Story and a whole lot more. Folks, I'm Rod Rodriguez. I'll see you the next episode. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone.